This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name is Valerie McIntyre. I'm a deacon here at Church of the Resurrection and the pastor of spiritual formation. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, risen one, would you come and breathe upon us the comfort of your Holy Spirit? Would you comfort us by your Spirit with the same comfort that you yourself have received from your Father? Amen. I've been a follower of Jesus since I was about 15 years old. My initial conversion was dramatic and miraculous. For the first couple of years, I lived in the glow of being loved and forgiven by God. I was alive and alert. I was on fire with this experience of being made new by the Holy Spirit. During that time, I read the Bible for the very first time, starting on page one with the book of Genesis. I knew absolutely nothing about Bible history. No Sunday school for me. But reading the stories metaphorically as a teenager, it felt to me that I had already arrived in the Promised Land. Such a honeymoon with God never lasts, however. It's not meant to last forever. In time, I came to understand that we spend most of our Christian lives in the wilderness. After being delivered from Egypt, delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred in the, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, we set out on a long, and winding road to the new Jerusalem. At the core of our Christian identity, we are pilgrims. In the words of Hebrews, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In the next few minutes, I want to reflect with you on Isaiah's message to us in chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. You'll find it in your pew Bible on page 599, 599. The theme of this passage is consolation. The prophet wants to minister God's comfort to us. To do that, he sets up a contrast between the fleeting and temporary glory of human beings and the eternal glory of the kingdom of God. If you're following this series, you've already heard about the historical context of the book of Isaiah. Uh, this message of comfort is addressed to a people who feel powerless, demoralized, and defeated. The people of God to whom Isaiah prophesies are living through a period of judgment. They have been scattered and exiled to Babylonia and Assyria. The people of God are far away from the, the stability and the security that they once knew. And God's promise to bless the whole world through them seems distant and dim in their collective memory. 
They are in a wilderness, literally, metaphorically. As you hear that description, perhaps you also, like the people of God, hearing Isaiah's message, feel powerless, demoralized, defeated, perhaps about something in your personal life, or discouraged about the trial we're enduring as a church. Bewildered when you hear about people you know walking away from Jesus, deconstructing their faith. Overwhelmed when your newsfeed drops story after story about suffering and chaos, treachery and violence in the world. If you're feeling powerless, demoralized, defeated, Isaiah's message is for you. His message of comfort is for you. Let's look briefly at the passage as a whole and then take a deeper dive into two of the main themes in Isaiah's message. Uh, notice that there is a conversation being described here, a rather animated conversation. God is speaking, a voice is crying out, someone's asking questions, a voice is responding to the questions. Even the instructions are about speaking out. Lift up your voice with strength. Behold your God. Make straight his path in the wilderness. This volleying back and forth of questions and answers provides us a little glimpse into the unseen heavenly realm. If Isaiah's vision of this heavenly realm in chapter 6 that Father Brett preached on a few weeks ago helps us to imagine what we might see in the heavenly realm, chapter 4 helps us imagine what we might hear if we could eavesdrop on the eternal Trinitarian conversation of our loving, holy God with the angels and, all, and archangels and all the company of heaven. <laughs> Imagine with me for a moment that pro the prophet Isaiah, praying, seeking the face of God, holy God, how do you see things? I want to align my way of seeing with your way of seeing, my way of hearing with your way of hearing, my way of thinking with your way of thinking, my desires to your desires. I want to say the things that you're saying. What are you saying to your tired, discouraged, fragile people? Isaiah overhears the voices in the heavenly realm saying, comfort, Comfort my people back and forth again and again. Comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah is in touch with that realm that Jesus asks us to remember every time we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Isaiah peers into the heart of God, he comes forward proclaiming a fresh, new message. The message is this. The season of judgment 
Pruning and refinement is drawing to a close. Something is shifting and changing. It is time to prepare for something new. Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins, and that huge reversals are in the works. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. With Isaiah, we want to see as God sees, to align our ways of seeing to God's ways of seeing, our ways of thinking to God's ways of thinking. And when we get in sync with God in this way, we receive great, lasting, enduring consolation, comfort, strength to keep moving forward. In order to align ourselves with God's perspectives, according to Isaiah, we first need to make peace with the fact that everything around us is temporary. Only then can we truly set our hope on what is eternal. Verse 6, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. These sobering words about human frailty remind me of a conversation I had with a group of leaders some years ago. This conversation left a huge impression on me. It was a prayer meeting with a handful of leaders from Church of the Resurrection, probably mid-90s. It was an exciting time to be a leader at Church of the Resurrection. We were growing numerically at a remarkable rate. We were one of the most popular churches in town. And the conflicts and splits and testing and pruning that would happen a few years later were unimaginable to us at that time. But most importantly, the Holy Spirit was at work in our midst in a remarkable way. All of us in that gathering knew that what was happening amongst us was not our doing. It was God's work. In this meeting, a few of us were young leaders in our 20s. Our senior leaders at the time were in their 40s. The outlier in the group was a woman in her late 60s who had more ministry experience than the rest of us put together. And before we got down to the work of praying for the church, we talked excitedly about all that was happening in our midst. And in the middle of our laughter and celebration, the older woman spoke up. She said something that put quite a damper on our enthusiasm. 
The work of God in the church is very fragile, she said. The work of God amongst us is fragile. Even who we are as a people, locally, globally, the work of God is fragile. Her words were sobering. She was speaking to us from her life experience as someone who began her ministry during the powerful revival and renewal movements of the 1970s. She watched leaders rise and fall. Powerful movements arise and fizzle out. She also saw things that endured. She had eyes to see that unshakable kingdom of God, the unthwartable purposes of God that are at work even in the midst of human frailty. She was saying to us what the prophet Isaiah was saying to the people of God in exile in the 8th century BC. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. At first, the fragility of created things seems like bad news. For example, if you don't maintain your house, it will eventually fall to pieces. That car that you love will one day be in the junk heap. The institutions that you are counting on may flounder and fail you. Some of the people that you are attached to now will move away and you will lose touch with them. The people that matter the most to you will all die. In time, your health will also fail and you will die. It is all pretty depressing. However, the fleeting nature of human life is good news when it comes to evil in the world. Empires like Babylon and Assyria rise and they fall. Every tyrant, no matter how powerful, eventually succumbs to death. Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, all those guys are dead. That is good news, right? It is really good news. <laughs> Making peace with the temporary nature of everything in this world, including ourselves, is necessary to aligning ourselves with God's way of seeing the world. When we make peace with the fragility of all created things, some wonderful things can happen. First of all, we are motivated to better appreciate the present moment because we know it can't last. For example, accepting the frailty of a fruit tree in full bloom in spring means we pause to admire it, knowing it will only be in its glory for a day or two. It means taking a gazillion photos of your puppy or your kitten because you know it will only be that cute for just a few weeks. 
It means sitting patiently with an elderly parent or grandparent, because before long, you know you will be planning their funeral. To appreciate the temporary, unrepeatable nature of this present moment does not make us value our earthly lives and experience any less. It makes us value them more. To embrace the fragility of all created things also stirs up in us a primordial longing for what is permanent and beautiful and eternal. God put this longing in the human heart because it draws us toward God. It makes us long for what the author of Hebrew describes as the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the heavenly city whose builder and architect is God. Isaiah names this unspeakable, unshakable, eternal reality in one simple phrase, the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. What is this word of God that endures when everything else withers and fades? It is, of course, quite literally, the word of God. God's thoughts and plans and desires that we feed on day after day, week after week, recorded in the Bible. But prior to the written word of God is this ongoing, eternal, loving conversation that Isaiah was listening in upon between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word of God is, the, is embodied in the flesh and blood person of Jesus who entered our frailty. The promised Messiah whom John the Baptist announced and the prophet Isaiah foretold. Now on to verse 9 through 11. Notice that God is not promising to deliver the people of God out of the wilderness. Elsewhere in Scripture, God promises to bring his people into a promised land of safety and plenty. But in this passage, God announces that he is on his way to them. The Lord of hosts, the holy and mighty one, is on his way down to them down from his throne where he is high and lifted up, down to his beleaguered people who are struggling in the wilderness. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The image here, familiar in the ancient world, is of a team of workmen literally clearing a path or making a road through uneven terrain so that the king and his entourage, perhaps bedazzled with their splendor and wealth, perhaps riding on impressive horses, can pass through in comfort and ease, while the citizens of the realm look on with reverence and awe. But that is not the kind of king being described in this passage. The king who is coming is not like that. 
What is he like? Who is this Lord, this King who is coming for us, riding through the wilderness on the path that has been prepared for him? What kind of a king is he? Verse 10, he is powerful, and he is coming to reward the faithful. He comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. These words are quite significant. If you have one of those Bibles that has red print when Jesus' words are being quoted. These are the last of the red-letter words in the New Testament. Revelation 22:12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The Lord of hosts is coming to reward those who have endured trials and temptations in the wilderness. He is coming to bless and to comfort his people in the wilderness. What does it mean that God will recompense us? Uh, the simple meaning is just to give back in return. We give to God our love, our loyalty, our labor, and he reciprocates. He pours out his love on us demonstrates his, lo his loyalty to us, labors for us. But the word recompense also has the connotation of making up for loss or harm suffered. Earlier this summer, I was on a retreat, and I spent a day meditating on the story of the Good Samaritan. I had a little honest conversation with God about how I was feeling rather beat up, like the man on the side of the road. And I meditated on how Jesus is like the Good Samaritan, who binds up the man's wounds, takes him to a place of safety, and arranges to pay for the cost of the man's healing and re recuperation. After praying with that story for a day, I slept deeply, and the next morning when I sat down again to pray, it seemed like Jesus was speaking to me directly out of that story. Valerie, I take full responsibility to care for you when harm comes to you as you follow me. Jesus was promising to recompense me, to make up for any loss or harm I might have suffered in the past or will suffer in the future. It is difficult, even dangerous, to live and travel in the wilderness. We are tempted, we suffer, we get disoriented and discouraged. But God sees us in the wilderness. He sees you. He sees me as we really are, frail, limited, tired, weak. He knows what each of us has suffered in our choices to follow, 
and obey our Lord through the wilderness of life. He also sees the suffering we bring on ourselves through the choices we make. And he sees what we suffer through no fault of our own, simply because we live in a fallen world. But God does more than see us, more than simply set his gaze of love upon us. He comes to be with us in the wilderness. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This image of the king as a shepherd gives us a clear understanding of what kind of king is coming. He's not coming with weapons of war to rescue us and whisk us off to the holy city. Instead, he's coming as a shepherd to walk with us through the wilderness. The image here is of a flock of sheep in the springtime when the little lambs must stay close to their mothers, still dependent upon them for milk. It's a time when the flock is vulnerable to enemies. While preparing for this homily, I googled this question, how to lead a flock of sheep. The top hit, believe it or not, came from the Ministry of Agriculture in Saskatchewan, Canada. The Ministry of Agriculture offers these tips for leading a flock of sheep. Sheep, by nature, are followers. Let them follow, and do not drive them as you would cattle. Sheep react negatively to loud noises and yelling. Wool grabbing and rough handling will cause bruising. Sheep move best when they are not afraid. So work slowly and calmly. When they are really frightened, they will run away in a panic. Isaiah describes the living God, the Almighty One, as a shepherd who understands the sheep even better than the Ministry of Agriculture in Saskatchewan. He tends us like a shepherd. He gathers us in his arms. He carries us in his bosom and gently leads us. Our Lord Jesus, who said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, is the king whom Isaiah foretold. He does not come to us with loud noises and yelling, with wool grabbing and rough handling. He works among us slowly and calmly. He comes to bless the meek and chastise the proud. He calls out to each of us his own precious lambs. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, before we conclude, let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for coming, for becoming human for us, for descending into our experience of being human that is so fragile, so changeable, so transitory. Thank you for becoming human for us. Thank you for coming into our frailty to the point of death on a cross. Thank you for all that you suffered on our behalf coming into our wilderness. And Jesus, we see you, the risen one, seated at the right hand of the Father, with resurrection light pouring from your hands and your feet and your side. Would you grant to us union with you in the consolation that you received from the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.